Welcome to the Fallon Forum. We're broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, here on La Reina, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. A quick shout-out to some of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. And thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines between Locust and Grand. That's uh, noted for its all-vegetarian menu, and Ritual Cafe has a great line of uh, fair trade tea and fair trade coffee. Thanks also to Noche. Noche is Central Iowa's premier home for jazz and cabaret, attracting both national acts and local favorites and featuring a world-class cocktail bar. Check out Noche on Walnut Street just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. And thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, located on Southeast 14th Street, authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with excellent, friendly service. All right, so folks, welcome to the program today. And yes, you uh, may have noticed that uh, my voice is, uh, oh, a few steps lower than usual. Uh, no, uh, I haven't been taking any kind of steroids or, 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 or hormone treatment. This is just uh, compliments of some, uh, some denizen of the viral kingdom that decided to come and pay me a visit last week. Anyway, looking ahead, we're going to talk a bit of an interesting angle here. We're going to talk about the uh, story behind the collapse of the... Uh, the Hard Rock Cafe in New Orleans that was under construction. Other folks might not know about this, but it was a fairly big deal. We'll also talk about uh, whether or not uh, nonviolent resistance can bring peace to Palestine. And in the uh, segment uh, tagged on at the end for our community-owned stations, we'll give you an update on, on climate activities, including the expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which may or may not happen. The recent Keystone uh, spill in North Dakota and the uh, California wildfires. But first, we're going to take a look at the uh, Iowa caucus situation. With me is uh, Kathy Burns, the uh, Bold Iowa's director of fun. Facilitator. Facilitator of fun. of fun, sorry. I don't know why facilitator. Sherry came up with that. Okay, well, it's Sherry's fault. So, hey. Um, Alliterative. We try to have, you know, if, you, if you're going to try to save the world, you might as well have a good time doing it. And. Um, you know, most candidates running for president on the Democratic side have made pretty important and meaningful statements about climate change. The problem is some of them fall down in their commitment to addressing the climate crisis on specific areas that are really important measurements of whether they're sincere or not. For example, for example, um, you know, we have some concerns about Biden. And uh, we'll get into that later. But uh, our concern this weekend was focused on Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota. Now, uh, Senator Klobuchar um, <laughs> has uh, for a long time, uh, you know, been criticized by some of the environmental and climate community in, in, uh, in Minnesota. But in the last, uh, what, nine months or so, we've developed our own concerns based on repeated efforts to talk with her about the Dakota Access Pipeline and about the, um, and about the uh, Line 3 Pipeline in Minnesota. And uh, you've been part of those conversations, Kathy, as well. Right, and my voice is also a little lower than usual. And we're sharing the same uh, 
viral right. visitor. Ouch. <laughs> right. The first time that, well, the, the, I think the most um, important time that we talked to, to Klobuchar about pipelines was dressed as penguins, several of us, with Bold Iowa. That was what, the first, what I believe. Was that? What that was, was up that? in uh, Iowa Falls. Iowa Falls. And we were at a cafe. Uh, three of us were dressed as penguins in the front row. When she got done, she she's had a few good things to say about climate when she did her stump speech. But then when it came time to ask questions, one of the penguins got to ask a question. She didn't want to call on a penguin. She said she preferred to call on humans first. <laughs> she called on Ed, and Ed said, I defer to the penguins. <laughs> and uh, one of us asked her, uh, you know, if she would speak out against pipelines, um, where does she stand on the Line 3, the Enbridge Line 3 in Minnesota, and also the Dakota Access Pipeline in Iowa? And I, I don't recall her answer, but it was a non-answer. She yeah. just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, and, and then been, there were pe- people all over the state in Decor and Iowa City and Everywhere have been trying to, you know, get her to be specific about where she stands because she has been very evasive about Line 3 in Minnesota. And uh, I think for me the, the, the telltale moment, the moment that made it clear that she is she's grim and determined not to be held accountable on, on oil pipelines. It happened at the state fair. And, uh, right. Uh, we were out hunting down presidential candidates <laughs> before their uh, soapbox speech. And found uh, Senator Klobuchar outside the Varied Industries building, and um, I came up to her, and oh, she was so friendly, just happy to see me. I, I thanked her for her statements about climate change. Um, and then when I said, want to talk to you about the Dakota Access Pipeline, she just turned away and walked away and mumbled mumbled something and then just refused. I mean, and she's been like that. She, is, she refuses to be held accountable. Uh, and again, it's been... There's been at least 12 or 15 people who have approached her on at least a dozen occasions, mm. and she refuses to answer. So that, yeah, That's a really telling video on the Bold Iowa site, too. Well, there's a video of me asking her that question at the yep. fair. So you can yep. see how she responds all friendly and happy, and then as soon as the word pipeline comes out of my mouth, she's a different person. She turned her back on you she turned and her walked back away. And walked away. I said, Senator Klobuchar, we really need to hear from you. And she just kept walking. She does not want to be held accountable. Part of the problem is... She's one of two politicians who took money from an Enbridge projects manager. Uh, that's, again, Enbridge is the company behind Line 3. And you'll never guess who the other politician, the other candidate for president, who took money from the Enbridge project manager. A, a Don- hint. A hint. Do- it wasn't one of the Democrats. Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, Klobuchar got more money than Trump from this Enbridge project manager. Now, uh, when that became public and a political liability, she gave the uh, $5,000 plus back. <laughs> but um, it's telta. It, it, it indicates a problem. You can't be serious about the climate crisis and not, be, not understand that you can't continue to expand oil pipelines. And that's exactly what's happening. Line 3 is a replacement of an existing line in Minnesota, and it would increase the flow of oil. And here in Iowa and North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois, the proposed expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline would mean increasing the pressure so that you can flow, they could flow over a million barrels a day, up from 570,000. That's a problem. You can't rein in carbon emissions if you're going to be doubling the supply of oil that can be transported. I also worry about the farmers on that uh, Dakota Access Pipeline who 
quote, voluntarily signed easement agreements because they signed those agreements understanding a certain flow of oil. Right. And they didn't understand that it might come back, you know, and be doubled later. Yeah. I, I worry about all of them. You're sure. And once you, once you double, once you increase the flow of oil, you also increase the, the risk, the pressure, the, the heat, and, of course, the volume. It's a big deal. And for her not to be opposed to that. And in fairness, we have asked other candidates about this. Yes. And I can't remember the whole list off the top of my head because there's so many candidates. But every other Democrat has said they are opposed to doubling the flow of oil, except Amy Klobuchar. Even Joe Biden said he was, but I'm not sure Joe Biden knew what we were talking about. (laughs) I'm not sure he ever does. But anyway, we went to the... Liberty and Justice Celebration. Formerly Gala, formerly... <laughs> the Jefferson Jackson dinner. Yeah. I, I, take, I take some personal responsibility for getting the name changed from Gala, which I thought was the worst possible. I, I don't know how Democrats come up with such bad messaging. Calling, sounds, sounds hoity-toity. Oh, yeah. Calling an event. You, you're trying to appeal to the working class, to rural America, and you're calling your big celebration a gala? Think again. Yeah. So they did. And they came up with Liberty and or just uh, yeah, Liberty, Liberty and Justice, Justice Celebration. Celebration. That's not bad. A lot of syllables. We'll, we'll, we'll give them props for that. Okay. Anyway, 14 candidates were there. Uh, well, and then Beto O'Rourke, of course. Beto O'Rourke dropped out right before the event. Right. But we wanted to make sure that Amy Klobuchar knew that we're serious about holding her accountable on this pipeline issue. <laughs> so with less than 24 hours before the event, we got to – oh, well, it, it all started actually when one of our – um, bird dogs, one of old Iowa's bird dogs, went to a Klobuchar event in downtown Des Moines and, again, didn't even get a chance to talk with her because once her staff knew he was going to ask her about the pipeline, they were very effective at keeping him from her. So it just, it just, make, it just really upsets us that she will not be held accountable. We tried to change that on Friday. Right. We, we found ourselves thinking and thinking about that interaction that uh, that bold Iowa bird dog had with her, Sean. And um, we had gone to the ReStore, what, a year and a half ago or something, and thinking ahead of some kind of a demonstration in, involving pipelines, we had bought three used pieces of six-inch, like five-foot pieces of six-inch pipe. And... We had them, in the, and then we also found a can of green paint at the restore that was the same color as, as oil pipelines. And I know because I watched that thing get landed in the ground in, in Jasper County when I lived there. Um, we found ourselves about 9.30 at night, then the day before the just Freedom and Justice celebration. Liberty, I believe. Liberty and Justice. Close we, enough. We, got, we said, let's take a look at those pipes. The next thing we knew, we said, let's take a look at that paint. Then the paint was open, the brushes came out, and we painted those pipes. 9.30 at night. We continued yeah. the next morning to embellish them with uh, one was labeled Dapple, one was labeled Line 3, and then make some signs that said, Amy, where do you stand? So we, we, took, those, we took those to her rally. Yeah, I think there were six of us at her uh, rally which started about an hour late. Uh, it was <laughs> so cold it was leading out with those cold. cold pipelines. But uh, we were there. Um, and, you know, again, I don't fault the staff for doing this, but the staff tried to they – had, they had taller signs than our signs, so they were able to stand in front of us and kind of block the view. But we ended up going to the back of the rally where there was a little bit of, a, little bit of an incline and maybe Senator Klobuchar could see us from there. But then with her parade, it's a, a two-block march from her rally site to the Iowa Event Center – we made sure we got in front uh, of the parade. And we, we led the parade <laughs> with our pipeline replica, 
And our Amy, where do you stand on Dapple and Line 3 signs? Um, I haven't been in a parade like that since I was a pom-pom girl at Harlan Community High School back in the 70s. Send photos. <laughs> I almost I almost did some <laughs> kicking and, and, and pom moves, but with a big pipe in my hand, it was going to be pretty tough. Yeah. So anyway, we got to the, the door of the Iowa Event Center, and... Um, well, just kind of uh, partially blocked it. For, there, were, there were multiple doors, so it wasn't anything we could accomplish. And we didn't really intend to be uh, to, to block it permanently in, in any kind of significant no. way. But we wanted to be there. And, and yet she saw, she walked right by me holding, she had, I think she walked almost under the I, pipeline. I held the pipeline up so it wouldn't <laughs> And she anybody. walked right by me holding the sign saying, Amy, where do you stand? And she, she is evasive. She is, does not want to answer this question. And, you know, to... There's, I don't. I don't see why a politician should be allowed to get away with that. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, for example. When we confronted her on the climate crisis, our first meeting with her back in February at, in Waterloo, we felt that she was you know, indicating, you know, paying lip service to climate, but then she wasn't prioritizing it in her message on during her stump speech on her website. And we confronted her in the selfie line afterwards, and she didn't ham and haw and run away and ignore the question. She said, let me push back. And then she went by, She went on with her argument about ending corruption. Okay, we disagreed, but at least she had the guts to give us a response. She did. And yeah. it was direct, and she, like you said, she didn't ham and haw. And, and honestly, she has become more proactive and more direct about her, her voice, her, her vocalizations on climate. Um, and her staffers didn't push us away. They actually approached us to, then after one of the – we were at one of the rallies, and they came right up yeah. to us afterwards and said, we see you everywhere. What do you want? And we had a good conversation yeah. with them. And she's one of a half dozen or eight maybe candidates who have spoken out and said, yeah, they are opposed to the expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline. So we're seeing candidates that are willing to be pushed, willing to push back, uh, willing to take a stand. And Klobuchar is unique in her – her absolute steadfast refusal to even have a conversation about oil pipelines like the Dakota Access Pipeline and Line 3. We did generate a lot of discussion, though, with some of the people True. who were with her rally. And a lot of people joined the rallies to get a ticket into the event, which is fine. But they're with the rally, and they're wearing the T-shirts, and they, 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 they look like supporters. But a lot of people approached us, and, well, some of them said, what's Dapple? We knew those weren't the Iowans in the group. But um, <laughs> th then we had some good conversations with some of the folks at her rally about about the pipelines, and, and we asked them to ask her when they get a chance where she stands on pipelines, and I hope they do that. Yeah, And a lot of them were surprised that she, uh, she refuses to um, take a stand. And I think uh, I think the more people know that I mean this is a really important issue in Iowa. I mean, climate change is a crisis. The pipeline is part of that crisis, and locally, it's an issue of great concern. Not to be, not just because of its climate impact, because of its potential threat to our water and our land, and also because of the the, the, the festering uh, discontent over the use of eminent domain to build a private pipeline. So, she's got to take a stand on this at some point. Um, and it, it looks to me like the reason she's not taking a stand is because she's with the pipeline company. It feels like she, it. She doesn't want to push back against the construction of Line 3. Uh, she doesn't want to oppose the expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline because she's okay with those things happening. And that, in my opinion, makes her a climate hypocrite because you can't be opposed. You can't say that you want to fight climate change and you understand that it's an existential threat and still support expanding the capacity to produce and transport and consume oil and gas. Agreed. 
Um, did we all also mention that the Keystone leaked? And I was uh, going to talk about that later. But oh, yeah, yeah Keystone right. up in North Dakota did leak, and that is uh, a serious concern. Yep. Uh, we'll talk about that later in the program. Uh, but, yeah, we're going to go to a short break here. Kathy Burns has been joining us, folks. Uh, thanks, Kathy. You're welcome. Uh, next segment, we're going to hear from Leanna Elliott. She's the co-founder of WHIV 102.3 FM in New Orleans, and she's also the chief of staff for Mayor LaToya Cantrell. Always plenty to talk about with our friends in New Orleans. And, again, apologies from Iowa for sending all of our topsoil and nitrates and uh, manure down to you and killing the Gulf Stream. It's not my fault. We're trying to do what we can up here. <laughs> But we're still working on that. But uh, we'll, we'll be talking about a kind of a different angle on our usual conversation today. The um, bizarre collapse of the Hard Rock Cafe construction site in New Orleans. Uh, that has a bunch of angles to it. We'll talk with Leanna when we get back from her break here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music, and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. 
With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Uh, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Glad to have you back with us here. Later in the program, we're going to be talking about uh, the question of can nonviolent resistance bring peace to Palestine. Uh, uh, Pastor uh, Jack uh, Mithelman is going to be joining us for that conversation. Also, we'll talk about, uh, in our climate update section, we'll talk a little bit more about the proposed expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline and also about the Keystone spill in, the, in North Dakota and about the crazy situation in California with wildfires. Uh, but at the moment, I want to welcome to the program um, Leanna Elliott. Hello, Leanna. Are you with us? I am. Hi, Anne. How are you? Good. Well, folks, Leanna is the uh, co-founder of WHIV 102.3 FM in New Orleans, and she's the chief of staff for Mayor uh, LaToya Cantrell. And uh, delighted to have you on the program again, Leanna. Thanks for having me. Yeah, although I, I know our, our, our conversation is uh, uh, un- unfortunate. Apparently, the... Um, I don't, I'm not sure how many stories tall it was, but the Hard Rock Cafe that was under construction in New Orleans collapsed about, what, two or three weeks ago? Yes, on October 12th. Yeah. And then um, after that, the uh, effort to bring the two cranes down uh, with an implosion didn't quite go as planned either, did it? Um, actually, it sort of went as well as it could have. This is a little bit of uncharted territory in engineering terms. So um, we're actually pretty satisfied with the way that it went. Um, you know, right now there was no other loss of life or major infrastructure damage, so we're counting that as a win. Okay. But there were there were three deaths involved in the initial collapse of the, uh, of the uh, cafe, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. So this was a hotel that was under construction. Um, it was really just in the concrete uh, pouring stage, and, um, and then on October 12th, the, some of the upper levels pancaked onto the lower levels. There were, you know, I think almost 200 workers on site. Uh, over 20 were injured and transported to uh, hospitals from our EMS, uh, and unfortunately, three people uh, were killed in that as well. So um, that also left two very large cranes um, unstable that were on top of the, uh, the second, sort of second part of the structure. Um, and that sort of left everything in a very precarious position. We were trying to do a search and rescue um, for those two individuals that were still trapped that we uh, we didn't know exactly yet what had happened to them. So um, it's been a really, really um, tense situation, heart-wrenching for the families as well. So two of those individuals are still stuck in the rubble, yeah. Two of them are still stuck there. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it... This is kind of an unprecedented situation, and this is like a, you know, it's a major, major structure, and it's right actually in the French Quarter. It's on the very um, sort of like 
northernmost edge of the French Quarter. Mm. So usually with these kinds of big sites, you know, you're kind of working in these very tiny margins. In this case, you're literally surrounded on all sides by historic buildings that are occupied and operational, small businesses, parking garages, you know, that everything that you'd need to make a regular downtown historic quarter operate. And, um, and so that means when you have a crane that's, you know, millions of tons, and it's kind of wavering in the wind a little bit, and you don't know which way it's going to fall. This is a really scary situation, and it's nobody really knew what to do about it, and we can't really get in there and go explore right. and see what the structural damage is because it's just too dangerous. Yeah. And how many how many stories tall was the building? I think it was supposed to be 18. So 18. the bottom part of it, yeah, the bottom part of it was a, um, a parking garage, and then the, the upper stories were the, the hotels or rooms. This was actually part of, this was actually the site of the historic Woolsworth uh, sit-ins back in the 1960s in the Civil Rights protest era, and it had been long since vacant, and then there was a uh, height um, waiver given to be able to develop, mm. develop the site a little bit taller than the buildings in the area, which is not relevant to whatever happened structurally with the collapse, but that it was, um, you know, it's a little bit bigger than what you'd expect right. in the French Quarter. And was the whole building going to be devoted to the Hard Rock Cafe in was there, there going to be other functions there as well? That's yeah, I think it was had, it had a first floor retail element with parking, and then the rest of it was hotel. Okay. All right. Well, so uh, I, I did see news that came out a couple of days ago um, suggesting that there were some flaws in the, in the uh, construction that were known by some of the workers that apparently never, never, never got out there. There were some beams in, at the low, ground level that were already bending. Um, uh, experiencing a high level of torque is, is that uh, am I reading am I reading that story correctly? Yeah, we've seen a lot of these accounts coming from workers, and um, you know, right now the um, it's a little bit of everybody's a kind of an, an engineer this morning sort of a thing. A lot of Monday morning armchair quarterbacking, but um, but we really don't know. And right, right now, what we're n- number one concern is the public safety of everyone around that site and ensuring that there is no additional loss of life or injury that right. happens. Our second focus is recovery of those people. Nothing else really matters because there are families out there that are grieving and their loved ones are still stuck in there. And then third is getting those small businesses around them open and they can operate again because this is just as much of a disaster for them as well. And then last but not least is sort of what happened, right? But in our order of priorities, getting the, you know, the people that are affected by this are number one. So we really don't know. And it's not, uh, we're not part of the investigation. That is all uh, sort of something that's going to happen after the fact with the parties that are more directly involved. Right. You know, that's, that seems like a, the, a, an entirely reasonable allocation of priorities for sure. So um, what will happen to the site uh, once, we, once we move on from this phase? Uh, will, is there, will, there, will it be an attempt to continue to con- construct the cafe or is it going to just come down completely? Um, the mayor has stated publicly that she wants to see it all the way taken down. Um, I think personally that's not a bad idea uh, since you don't really know what's going on in there and structurally, but you know, probably better to start from scratch. But again, I'm, <laughs> I'm armchair engineering myself at that, right, okay. at that point. <laughs> yeah. So how, how, how much has been spent on the project so far? Um, I actually don't know how much the developers had spent on it, but I know that the response for us in sort of the throes of it was costing the city $400,000 a day just in terms of our public safety team and the response. And I do want to give a shout-out because I have never seen a public safety team respond as quickly, cohesively, and with such uh, grace and elegance to this unprecedented situation. I think that mm-hmm. they're absolute rock stars for doing that. 
Um, so in that, in that sense, you know, there is a lot of money on the line, right? And I know that there's going to be a lot of back and forth about who is responsible for what and who's paying for what and et cetera, et cetera. And as far as we're concerned, like I said, our number one state or concern is safety and the, you know, the respectful recovery of those remains. So we still have people that are on site. We still have crews that are on site just in case um, anything happens. We're watching the, the weather very closely, making sure that nothing else moves or shifts on the building. And so far we feel like it's in a, in a good space uh, stability-wise. Um, but it is, you know, it is an on, it's going to be a long-term project. This is going to be something that's not resolved within the next few weeks. Right. It's probably fortunate that you're through a hurricane season because uh, with hurricanes on steroids because of the uh, uh, new climate era, uh, that could potentially be a problem. Yes, we had a few very scary moments um, over the hurricane season. We're not quite out of the woods yet. It's, it's over right. on November 30th, so knock on wood. I don't want to jinx it, but right now it seems like the Gulf is pretty quiet, so we're keeping our fingers crossed. Right. Okay. Well, uh, you know, inevitably, rightly or wrongly, there are always uh, those who want to make uh, identify political consequences from these kinds of, uh, uh, you know, tragedies. Do you see any, any risk to... Anyone in the political universe in New Orleans or Louisiana, uh, is, is, there, are there, is there noise being made by any particular constituency that uh, some political heads ought to roll, or is that, uh, is that not even becoming an issue? Um, you know, the, the, the rumor mill is swirling. Um, we're trying to stay focused on our mission um, as a city, but, you know, there are a lot of concerns about what's happening in terms of some of the workers that are um, their foreign workers and uh, and ICE and OSHA concerns and sort of all of that is in the ether, and I think all of those things will probably come into play, and you'll probably see a little bit more of the political um sort of chatter uptick when, when the, some of those things start coming out. Right. Um, but right now, it's a lot of sort of just stories and anecdotes and hearsay, and we know that this is why this is really important to have these kinds of workers' protections, because if something was wrong and somebody feared speaking up because of their paperwork status, right. then that's lots of life that could have been avoided. Right. Good point. For really yeah. silly reasons. So. One final question. Has Donald Trump tweeted about this yet? <laughs> no. Not to my knowledge, thank goodness, but um, if he has, I try, to, I try to ignore and stay focused on the job. Good for you. Hey, Leanna, it's been good talking with you. You too. Thanks so much. Folks, we're talking with uh, Leanna Elliott. She's uh, the co-founder of WHIV 102.3 FM in New Orleans and also the chief of staff of Mayor LaToya Cantrell. Again, thanks for joining us. Thanks again. All right, folks. Uh, when we come back from a short break here, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk with uh, Pastor Jack, Jack Mithelman. Uh, about an upcoming event here in central Iowa that should be of interest to a lot of folks who are concerned about peace and justice in Palestine. And we'll kind of focus on the question of can nonviolent resistance potentially bring peace to that part of the world. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Fallon Forum, broadcasting live from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. We're here in the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Quick shout out to some of our local business partners like Gateway Market and Cafe. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, supper, and they've also got a catering service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant in the East Village of Des Moines. Hawk, uh, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. That's Hawk Restaurant. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance, 
located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. No appointment needed. Stop by for all your insurance needs at Diversity Insurance. And thanks also to Community CPA with offices in Des Moines, Iowa City, and now Minneapolis. Community CPA covers all your tax and accounting needs. Give uh, founder and director Ying Sa a shout. That's Community CPA. All right, again, welcome back to the program, folks. Uh, later in the show, uh, we'll be giving you a climate update about um, a few interesting, disturbing stuff happening, and also there's also some good stuff happening. We'll talk about that later. But first, I want to welcome uh, Pastor Jack Mithelman to the program. He's a, he's a pastor from Marshalltown, Iowa, and been uh, active with uh, concerns about the conflict in Palestine. And apparently, you're also um, helping to promote uh, a visit from... Uh, do I say it right? Daud Nasser? Daud Nasser. Nasser, who is uh, a Palestinian farmer. Yes. Who has done amazing things with his 100-acre farm, despite uh, being encroached by settlements on, what, multiple sides, I believe. Yes, yes. So. Um, Mr. Nasser has an amazing story. His family has held title to this land since 1916. And in 1991, uh, he and his family began to um, be the objects of harassment from various entities uh, in hopes of driving them from their land so that this last remaining hilltop in Bethlehem could be used for settlement activity. When you stand on Mr. Nasser's farm and look around, every single hillside is covered with a settlement. And this is prime territory uh, for uh, Israelis. And also prime farmland, it sounds like. Indeed, it is Mm -hmm. prime farmland. And with that 100 acres, I am amazed at what the Nasser family accomplishes uh, with all of their agricultural pursuits. How have they been able to avoid uh, being swallowed up in the settlement development? There have been numerous court cases um, and... Because his family actually holds legal title and has the paperwork, uh, no Israeli court up to this point has granted the wishes of those wishing to take the land from them. And exactly how the legal strategy moves forward is a question, but that does not mean people will not continue to try. When you try to visit Mr. Nasser's farm, the first thing you have to do is park at least a quarter of a mile down the road and literally climb over a dirt and rock berm in order to proceed down the road to the farm, which is always locked. And Who built the uh, dirt and rock berm? Apparently, the Israeli authorities did that to limit access to the farm. Certainly, it is difficult for the Nasser's to get their produce off the land. It basically has to be hand-carried. Over the wall. Over the over this berm, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I guess one obvious question before I, I want to get into the, the, the politics of this more, but agriculturally, what do they produce? They produce um, figs, almonds, um, and and I believe they have bees as well. Um, so they are a, a broad-based um, 
producer of things that are staples in the Palestinian diet. And the hillside around about there used to be uh, clustered with lots of similar small farms, correct? It, it was all farmland. And um, the most egregious example of how Mr. Nasser's family has been harassed is a few years ago, 2014, I believe it was, um, the IDF pulled bulldozers onto the property. That's the Israeli Defense Front? Yes, the Israeli Defense Force Force, pulled bulldozers onto the lower part of the property and bulldozed acres of fruit trees. How did they get away with that? Well, (laughs) what was their justification? Um, Their justification was... uh, to try to limit the Nasser's agricultural output so that they would financially be unable to continue farming. Okay, that's honest enough. <laughs> I mean, it's not right, yes. but that's, that's, I understand why an oppressive authority would want to do that, undercut your, uh, your financial viability. But what legal argument did they stand on to, to do such a thing? I don't know that they necessarily needed a legal uh, argument. Okay. So... So uh, because the Nasser's control, that they own the title to this land and have since 1916, is, is that unique? I mean, is, have other families that have lost farmlands, far, farms to settlements, did they simply not have that same arrangement? Or why did they fail where the Nasser's have been able to so far hang on? Well, of course, uh, the so-called 1948 Israeli War of Independence drove many Palestinians from their homes and farms into refugee camps, most notably uh, around Bethlehem and in Gaza. And as a result of that, uh, oftentimes this paperwork was left behind. We're talking about Mm. uh, ancestral um, ownership of the land being passed down and had previously not been questioned. Mm. The fact that Mr. Nasser actually has all of the the legal paperwork necessary is entirely to his benefit so in this instance. He's a better manage, manager of his of his uh, documents. I I, I would that, say that he was I would say the family was simply fortunate. Right. Um, the tie-in with some of the things you were speaking about previously, and and a prime reason we brought Mr. So seek to bring Mr. Nasser to Iowa, is because of the issue of eminent domain, and we're very pleased that a majority of Mr. Nasser's tour is going to be uh, in rural Iowa. During the course of the tour, which begins on Thursday, he will be in Decorah, in Waverly, in Ames. And Sioux City, Forest City, and he'll also be making appearances in Council Bluffs, Omaha, Iowa City, and the Quad Cities. So he's touching all corners of our state, and we have been in touch with with um, concerned farmers um, who who are concerned about la- the land and maintaining their own ownership. Um, to be part of this tour and to be in solidarity with what Mr. Nasser is doing. Yeah, regardless of political affiliation, Iowa's well, Iowans uh, are soundly in support of keeping the use of eminent domain to a minimum. Absolutely. And when they were queried about uh, the use of eminent domain to build the Dakota Access Pipeline a few years back, I want to say 74% of Iowans opposed it. My guess is landowners, 
farmers in particular, along the path of that pipeline, it's got to be closer to 90% who oppose it. Uh, I mean, I, 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 when I walked that pipeline route uh, four years ago, I, I met very few people who thought it was okay for the government to come in and take their land on behalf of a private corporation. So I imagine you'll find a pretty receptive audience. Now, making that connection um, might be a, might be a, a bit of a, a leap for some, but uh, you know, to me, it, it doesn't sound all that different. Uh, I mean, so far, though, the Nasser family has not uh, succumbed to that pressure, although it sounds like it may be ramping up. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know what other mechanisms the, the IDF has at its disposal, other than building a berm, uh, <laughs> you know, coming in with bulldozers and knocking out several acres of their crops. I, I, you know, I don't know how much further they can go or how much more pressure uh, the Nasser family can withstand. It sounds like a very uh, uncomfortable situation. I'm eager to speak with Mr. Nasser because I have wondered if things are maybe at a bit of a standstill at the moment, given the political upheaval in Israel. Unfortunately, from our vantage point, we don't see um, any change, regardless of whether it is Mr. Netanyahu or who continues, or Mr. Gantz, who is ultimately the prime minister. So right now, you're saying that you don't see any change in the status quo and the pressure on Mr. Nasser and presumably on other farmers across uh, across the across the the region are going to continue to um you know to be pushed around and maybe even lose their lose their land lose their farms we have some reason to believe that when specific instances are mentioned there it can be enough pressure to bear that um the israeli government grows cautious uh, the primary example is with the Augusta Victoria Hospital uh, in East Jerusalem uh, that has been under constant threat by the Israeli government and by pressure from international Lutherans and financial support from them that that property uh, has remained in the hands of the Lutheran World Federation. So we are hoping that once people learn about Mr. Nasser's situation, specific pressure can be brought to to encourage the Israeli government to end this campaign of harassment. Is this his first trip to the U.S.? No, he has done several tours in the past. Actually, this will be his second tour of Iowa. Okay. He was last in Iowa in 2009, and we have been uh, very pleased by um, most of these most of these places where he was visiting. One contact was all that was necessary, mm -hmm. and they said, yes, we want him to come. So uh, we believe, and this is particularly true in northwest Iowa, uh, we believe there is something of a change afoot, and we are hoping that Mr. Nasser's presence and people's interaction with him will continue that change. Mm. Well, it's, it's an important conversation on, on a number of levels, certainly on eminent domain, on the, the right to farm. Uh, also on the, you know, our, our collective perception of the conflict between Palestine and, and the state of Israel. Um, and, and also, I think, uh, more generally, I mean, I, I mean, Mr. Nassar is not an immigrant, but he is, uh, he, he is, uh, he, he's a person who, when people, when, when your average, uh, average white American thinks about immigrants, you know, it's an image similar to his appearance that probably comes to their mind. 
whether it's Latino, Mideastern, um, you know, Southeast Asian. Uh, it's that brown or black-skinned person that, uh, that, that folks think about as immigrants. They don't, they don't really think about the immigrants from northern European countries. So I, mean, I, I see this as being a really, really productive conversation on a number of levels. And I'm really uh, you know, impressed that uh, he's willing to take the time to do that. Presumably, um, his agricultural responsibilities have kind of been you know, tapered down a little bit this time of the year. Well, we do, um, we do try to organize these tours at a time when it is um, – an easier time for him to be away. But the wonderful news of 2019, they have never had more visitors to the farm than they have had this year, people who come to learn and to work. Hmm. And uh, again, I want to emphasize um, his central Iowa appearance, uh, two of them primarily. Uh, On Saturday, uh, this coming Saturday, he will be in Ames from 9.30 to noon at Bethesda Lutheran Church. And on Sunday afternoon, November 10th at 3 o'clock, he will appear at Drake University Meredith Hall, Room 101. Those are the chances for central Iowans to to uh, hear from him and interact okay. with him. And we have folks listening. I, I know quite, a, quite an audience in Iowa City as well. well when is his Iowa City His appearance? Iowa City appearance is Thursday, November 14th, 7 p.m. at St. Andrew's Presbyterian okay. Church. All right. Very good. So how did you get involved with this, Jack? Um, I made my first trip to Israel in January of 2000, which in some ways was the golden time to go. We were in the flush of the Oslo Accords. We had every reason to believe that peace was at hand. And, um, of course, it was in September of 2000 that uh, the awful visit uh, occurred to um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque that essentially destroyed the peace process. And Mm -hmm. it has been going downhill ever since. I've subsequently made three more trips uh, to Israel. I've visited uh, Mr. Nasser's farm three times during my visits. And... um, each time I have seen him, uh, there is, is more of an element of sadness to him. Uh, he, he, I think, is a, a essentially a hopeful person. But as you can imagine, dealing with almost 30 years of harassment, that does take a, a toll on oh, a person. Oh, it's got to take a huge toll on you. Yeah. How old is he? Um, I, I am guessing Mr. Nasser is in his early 50s. I don't know his precise age. Mm, okay. Um, another thing from a previous conversation, uh, it, it's, it's essentially two organizations that are involved with bringing Mr. Nasser to Iowa. Um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, its, it's uh, arm of global missions, is has established a separate entity called Peace Not Walls, and it is the opportunity for Lutherans to stand with justice in the Holy Land. Uh, the other organization that is involved with bringing him to central Iowa is known as the Middle East Peace Education Coalition. And as the name implies, there are a number of organizations that are involved in that. But During this year, we have made particular efforts to be in contact with the Democratic presidential nominees. I would say we have reached at least half of them. Hmm. And during the course of that time, 
we are we raise the issues with him, particularly about childhood detentions, and uh, we are always told we will check on it and get back to you. Never once have we received a touchback from them. So you have not received any response from any of the Democratic presidential candidates? No. About and again the, the primary about anything having to do mm. with the relationship of the United States to Israel and to Palestine. How do you how do you explain that? Are they are, does that mean they're they're not on the same page with you on this? I don't think we need to um, explain that there is enormous pressure coming from one side of that equation, and um, there is an enormous amount of money at stake. And um, campaign money, campaign money, right? And um, there is a, a, a an incredible disparity um, since the signing of the Camp David Accords of how our support for Palestinians has eroded, while support for Israel has increased. We want to make clear: none of these organizations I am talking about is anti-Semitic. We are instead concerned about the relationship of the United States with the government of Israel and how Palestinians are treated as the result of that. Right. Have there been any pushback here in Iowa by, for example, the Iowa Jewish Federation or any other um, pro-state of Israel organization? Um, Yes, there has been. um, About 18 months ago, we had Rabbi Brant Rosen, uh, who is part of the Midwest office of, of um, the, the Friends, and um, he made a tremendous presentation over at the Thoreau Center, right. and he explained uh, the difference between anti-Semitism and being concerned about the way the Israeli government operates. Yeah. And so uh, there was protest for that, and there has been other examples. Mm. We'll see what happens. Hey, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Jack, uh, uh, Pastor Jack Mithelman, and uh, this is about the visit of uh, Daoud uh, Nasser, a farmer from uh, Palestine coming to visit Iowa, extensive tour of Iowa, pretty soon. Again, thanks for tuning in. If you're listening on our community-owned station, stick around. we got more conversation. Thanks to Ashley Martinez, to Sherry Herdina and all those who helped make this show possible, including Juan Rodriguez, the station manager. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here as we uh, give you a climate update. There's always way more to talk about than we can possibly cover, so we're going to focus on three things in particular here today. Again, the, um, the, the big news out of the upper Midwest is the, uh, the estimated 383,000 gallons of oil uh, that leaked in North Dakota this past week from the uh, Keystone Pipeline. Now, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how many more times this is going to happen before folks start realizing that maybe, maybe this is not a good idea. Maybe pipelines aren't safe. Maybe there's no effective way to transport oil that uh, that makes it uh, that, that relieves a local uh, ecosystem. In this case, a wetland of the impact. So you know, again, about uh, two years ago, about 400,000 gallons of oil spilled in South Dakota from the Keystone Pipeline. This time, nearly the same amount. 
And again, to put it into perspective, 383,000 gallons, 400,000 gallons, that's about the size of, a, of an Olympic swimming pool. So that was dumped into a wetland in North Dakota. You know, and I, I right now, this is very fresh. Cleanup is underway. Uh, we'll see what happens. At least this has helped raise concerns about the expansion of the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, again, that's been fought in Nebraska extensively and to some extent effectively. Uh, we thought we had it beat, of course, when President Obama uh, canceled it back in 2015. But, of course, one of the first things that President Trump did when he got elected, I mean within a month or two, I think, is he approved the expansion of the Keystone XL pipeline and also the Dakota Access Pipeline. So we'll see where this goes. But, again, it's a, uh, a stark and painful reminder that oil pipelines leak. Not a question of if, just a question of when and where and how much damage will be done. Now, here in Iowa, and also, again, in North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois, we're dealing with a different pipeline. Uh, this one has been in action for now two years. Uh, it's the Dakota Access Pipeline. We've had, um, in Iowa, we've had, you know, there have been leaks in other, other portions of the, uh, of the pipeline. Uh, in Iowa, we haven't seen a major spill yet. But... Now here comes Dakota Access Pipeline wanting to double the flow of oil that's coming through our states. And uh, they're getting pushed back in some places, including Iowa and in Illinois and in North Dakota. Uh, but in South Dakota, commissioners uh, last week um, approved a conditional use permit for, quote, improvements to a pumping station near Canton, South Dakota, that would be used, again, that that's where the pressure would be increased in order to push more oil through the uh, pipeline. Uh, that was the, a vote of, um, by a vote of four to one, that proposal was approved. Now, Dakota Access, um, they're going to probably spend 30 to 40 million bucks to, um, to uh, build that pumping station. And... Um, yeah, we'll see where that goes because it is right now. Again, it's being opposed rather aggressively in Illinois and uh, in Iowa. The Iowa Utilities Board has said, "But well, yeah, it was very interesting what happened here because uh, Dakota Access came to the Utilities Board almost immediately after a Supreme Court ruling that everybody had been kind of waiting to see how it went." And the Supreme Court, um, unfortunately, ruled against the landowners who said, hey, eminent domain should not have been used to take our land for this pipeline. Supreme Court ruled against them, unfortunately. So um, uh, immediately after that, Dakota Access says, we're going to double the flow of oil through the pipeline in Iowa, and we're just letting you know because we're nice guys, and that's what we do. We're not, we don't have to tell you. This is just a, a notification to say, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, quote, optimize the pumping station near Cambridge, Iowa. And for those not from Iowa, Cambridge is just about 15 miles north of Des Moines and directly south of Ames, Iowa. We're just going to optimize that site. So it will allow us to increase the oil running through your state from 570,000 barrels per day to 1.1 million. So a whole bunch of people filed uh, responses to that, uh, that um, rather arrogant statement, <laughs> uh, 
saying, um, we don't think that's fair or right or good. I mean, they're, they're, and certainly climate change was certainly one of the key concerns, but also concerns about spills and leaks. And also concerns that landowners, even those that agreed to have this pipeline put across their land, even those who did so willingly, did so under the impression that it was a certain amount, not twice as much, as Dakota Access now wants to push through. So we kind of waited, and I mean, we, the Sierra Club was very involved, so was Bold Iowa, and again, a lot of individuals, some landowners along the route, and it was kind of wait and see. And in September, the Utilities Board came out with a, with a response saying, yeah, we, uh, we disagree uh, with the, the pipeline company. We think you have to file an amendment to your permit. Dakota Access pushed back and said, no, we're going to ask you to reconsider that. Utilities Board said, no, we're going to stick with what we said at first. So to the Utilities Board credit, they showed some spine, some guts, some persistence, and um, did some pretty good research. So we'll see what happens at this point. And right now, we're waiting to see uh, how Dakota Access responds, what kind of amendment they file. Meanwhile, of course, tribes in North Dakota are taking legal action. And in, in Illinois, uh, the Sierra Club and others are petitioning the Illinois Commerce Commission to not approve the expansion. So uh, Dakota Access is finding itself fighting this proposed uh, change on three fronts. Uh, well, and I, again, I'm not sure what else needs to happen in South Dakota, but it looks like uh, that may have gone the wrong way. In other climate news, uh, the fires in California, uh, just incredible. Again, one of the worst years ever. It does seem that the blazes are beginning to come under control, but the damage is huge. And um, the uh, response from the Trump administration, perhaps predictable. Trump tweeted this past week that California Governor Gavin Newsom has done a, quote, terrible job of forest management. Uh, Trump said that when fires rage, the governor turns to the federal government for help, quote, no more, the president tweeted. So Gavin Newsom, of course, he's not just going to take that laying down. Um, <laughs> he replied with his own tweet saying, quote, you don't believe in climate change. You are excused from this conversation. That was a, that was a gutsy response. <laughs> uh, probably one that was mostly well received uh, by Californians. So um, to be clear, you know, under, under, under Newsom, the state of California has... Um, expanded its fire prevention uh, efforts. Um, Even as support from the federal government has shrunk. So more state tax dollars are going into that effort. Uh, Newsom said in further responding to President Trump, quote, we are successfully waging war against thousands of fires started across the state in the last few weeks due to extreme weather created by climate change while Trump is conducting a full-on assault against the antidotes. That was Newsom's statement. Now, um, again, you you would think if you just heard President Trump speak on this, you would think, okay, well, California has all this forest land, and they're just not doing a very good job at managing it, or else it wouldn't be burning. Well, let's look at some facts. I I know President Trump is kind of averse to facts, but let's look at a few. You want to guess how much of the uh, forest land in California is under state control? 3%. About 40% of the state's uh, forest land is privately owned. 
57% of California's forests are controlled by the federal government. So I, I don't know how President Trump can even make such a statement with, with a straight face. Knowing, I mean, maybe he doesn't know these. Maybe he has alternative statistics that somehow show that most of California's forests are controlled by Governor Newsom. I don't know. But it is absolutely ridiculous. He can make those statements. And, again, to further, and, you know, to, to further make the point, of the, the two major fires that are currently burning in California, neither of those are happening on state forest land. Now, of course, uh, folks might remember last year when um, President Trump made a similar threat uh, when uh, fires were um, des- you know, destroying paradise up in Northern California and threatening Malibu. He, again, accused the state of, quote, gross mismanagement of forests. Uh, he went on, by the way, to misname the town of Paradise. Maybe folks, I, mean, I can't, what did he call it? Um, another P word. I can't remember what he called it, but, but he misnamed it. <laughs> he called it something else. And, uh, uh, and, um, and he also suggested that, you know, the, gov- the, the state of California should be raking the forest floor. And that would, that would somehow minimize fire. I mean, this man is so out of touch with reality, it is absolutely appalling. And still, you know, California burns. The federal government under Trump cuts its support, dumping more and more of the burden on the citizens and taxpayers of California. Well, again, I, I'm hoping that, uh, that They've turned the corner. It looks like on, on most of the fires that are happening in California, uh, the end is in sight. But again, the reality is this is an ongoing uh, activity. Uh, this is a new element of the new climate era, one that we should be paying attention to and dealing with collectively, rationally, um, not divisively like President Trump seems intent on doing. Thanks for joining me, folks. Ed Fallon here on the Fallon Forum.